Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Jim Forat, an actor, a hippie leader, a radical, and by happenstance, he was also on Christopher Street the night of the Stonewall Rebellion and stood in front of the club from 10 p.m. onward. He knows the truth behind this story that has been widely fictionalized by the gender lobby in recent years. The Liberation Front was founded on the third night of the Stonewall Rebellion, of which he was one of the founding members, an organization that took up most of his life in the 1970s. Farrat also worked in the music industry in the 1960s, where he was an assistant to Clive Davies at Columbia Records, involved in marketing and regularly brought into the room when acts like Janis Joplin and Big Brother were signed. He became the editor of New York Times, a weekly magazine in New York City in the 1970s, and he was a contributing writer with the original rock and roll music magazine called Crawdaddy. He was a pop culture critic for Billboard, a contributing writer at Rolling Stone and The Village Voice, and he was a contributing editor at Spin. In 1980, he opened the nightclub Danceteria with Rudolf Pieper. I welcome Jim Forat to Savage Minds. As you're well aware, the gender identity wars have taken us same-sex attracted people into their crosshairs in the sense of looking at Stonewall, looking at who really did Stonewall. The difference between the myth, and we can talk about where that myth started and the reality is huge, but most people, including academics, do not do their research. And it baffles me why people want to hold on to a 60s radical straight vision of what happened in the Christopher Street. I knew that, that the 60s straight radical vision because I was involved in the anti-war movement. And I know what the, how gay people who are closeted and cannot be visible behave. And I repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly have said, don't just listen to me, do your research. Look at the police report, look at the fire department's report, look at the hospital report, all of which are in four blocks of the actual location of the Stonewall Inn. They don't do it. And, and let me just, just briefly tell you what happened. I was walking home I worked for, for Clive Davis at Columbia Records. I didn't have to come in until noon because I was out at night. Um, and I was working late that Friday night. Uh, and I left the office about eight o'clock, came downtown, stopped off at Max's for a minute because I had to talk to Mickey Ruskin. Uh, the, of course, at, at nine o'clock in the evening, None of the people that you would want to see at Max's Kansas City were there at nine o'clock in the evening. There were people in the restaurant. And then I came across town uh, and got out of the subway uh, at 8th Street and 6th Avenue and started walking up Christopher Street. And this was about 10.15. And I noticed a police car in front of the Stonewall Inn, a place that I did not like. I lived around the corner on Waverly Place in a six-floor walk-up, and I still do. Um, thank God for rent regulations in this in this town, which has become so incredibly expensive to live. It has changed, and we can talk about that if we have time later. So I'm walking down Christmas Street. I see this police car in front of the Stonewall Inn, 
And being <clears throat> a 60s radical, I immediately want to know what is this police car doing in front of the Stonewall Inn? And it's a Saturday night and it's early. It's a hot summer night and there are people out on the street. I get to the front of the Stonewall and suddenly the door bursts open and out comes a police officer with this very masculine looking person, female, dressed to the nines in male drag uh, and short, stout and, and not happy. And she's handcuffed and he puts her in the police car and I don't know what the hell was going on there, but, but but I stood there and watched this. He goes back inside. Now, he goes back inside and she starts rocking the police car, being very true to, quote unquote, her gender identity, or I would prefer gender expression. And uh, there's maybe 25 or 30 people that stop, mostly young gay people, but not only young gay people. And suddenly one of the police car doors pops open, much to her surprise and to the cheers of the people that were there. And again, the, the, the role playing that, that, that she was into, she comes out of the car, triumphantly raises her fist with the handcuffs on. And fortunately or unfortunately, regardless of her wanting to express her gender in one particular way. She had female wrists and small hands. And the cops had not put the handcuffs on tightly. And so she gets out of the, the handcuffs. By now there's maybe 75 people in the street, you know, uh, blocking traffic and cheering and cheering. It's almost like you're at a disco, uh, let's say the garage, which was a very uh, famous underground disco here in New York, downtown New York. And Larry Levant is the DJ, fantastic DJ, has built the crowd up, built the crowd up, built the crowd up. And suddenly, as a great DJ will do, knows the right moment to lift up the arm of playing records at the time. Uh, and there's complete silence except for the roar of the people in the crowd. That kind of moment was what would happen when she got out of the car. And she started to, <coughs> excuse me, push her bulky frame against the police car. She tipped it, but it didn't tip over. And people went crazy. You know, now there's maybe a hundred people. This is still early on a, on a Saturday night. And it almost tips over, but it doesn't. And it comes down and I suddenly look at her and then look at the crowd and it was an incredible moment for me because I suddenly were, were seeing the invisible, visible, meaning the closet had broken down. The rebellion from within, from oppression and the closet, et cetera. People were looking at each other, not in a sexual objectification kind of way, but as a sense of what I would call now the beginning and seeding of community. And, and, and you know, it was a moment that a flashpoint that has forever stayed with me. It changed my life and I changed the life, it changed history, that particular moment. She squirreled off, never to be seen again. Who was she? We don't know. Okay. I know exactly what she looked like. 
and of course, uh, one of the characteristics and signifiers of, of, of lesbian and gay people is a fantastic imagination and creativity. And men, women have stepped up and said, that was me, that was me. Well, you're 5'11", and you're very, that was not you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Never, never um, was found again. And there are many people in the street. There's maybe 200 people in the street. It's 1030, and they're, and they're making noise. And the door opens from the stone wall again, and a cop looks out and freaks out, shuts the door, and I assume called for reinforcements. The, this was a, what was going on inside? Something very normal. And I know this from having later been in the nightclub business in New York City. It was a payoff. You could not have a gay bar in New York City because it was illegal to serve liquor to a sexual. And you would lose your liquor license. And yet these watering holes, these places that the mob organized crime had put up because, you know, night, nightlife, nightclubs, those kinds of businesses are cash business. The liquor is cash, the garbage is cash. The, you know, it's very hard to track what the actual income is. And that's what Ravel and, and, and Schrager were doing too. They were just stuffing money in their pockets and in the bins downstairs. It was very hard to track it until they got caught. Um, and what happened is that they arrested seven people. Seven, seven, not hundreds. Um, there was no battering of, of people. These pictures, many of them don't even come from that, from that evening. The very famous one of the, of, the, of the drag queen getting into the police van with her sort of 40s look. Um, wasn't that night, it was 1945. I mean, these are not hard things to, you know, for, for researchers and academics to, if they do their job, find out. There was no clubbing. The, the tactical police force of New York, which arrived around maybe 1130, uh, and I think was the result of the phone call of the two cops inside. Um, but David Carter in his really egregiously full of error book called Stonewall Riots um, had created another whole story about what this raid was about. I happen to have known the, the police officer in charge because he used to be uh, the head of the police office, uh, station in the East Village. And I had done a lot of political work in the 60s earlier uh, on organizing hippies to, to be against the war in Vietnam. Through a publication, a street publication called the Communications Company, and so the next day in the Daily News, there's an article about homosexuals riot on Christopher Street, two police officers injured. I called the reporter, and I said, "Were you there?" And he said, "Oh no, no, I wasn't there." I said, "Well, where'd you get this information?" He said, I got it from the police department's uh, communications person who I have a good relationship with. 
And I said, well, that's shocking because what you reported did not happen. What actually happened was that among the seven people, I think it was seven, it might've been eight or nine that were arrested was a known to the lesbian community, Speed Freak Dyke, who was always a little crazy. <coughs> Amphetamine was a drug of choice at that time. And it's not the same as the crystal that is destroying people's lives now in our community and other communities. Uh, she, and she was belligerent. She was with two gay men. They had been inside. They were told us to get out and stand on the side. And, and she tried to bite the police officer. She didn't penetrate the uniform. Uh, and the, the two cops, they were arrested and put in the paddy wagon, went to St. Vincent's Hospital because the police union had always told police officers in any kind of public confrontation where there, there may be criticism of the actions of the police, if any injury happens, go immediately to the hospital. They are the only two people that went to St. Vincent's Hospital's emergency room three blocks away that night. Out of coming from Christopher Street and the so-called riot, which I call rebellion, um, and they're dismissed. And that became the story. Now, why did the police department want that story told? They did not want the public to know about the systemic bribing of police officers all over the city by organized crime so they could operate these kinds of bars without liquor licenses. Uh, as I said, it was illegal to serve homosexuals. And the Stonewall itself was a seedy buff. I mean, you know, you read about Stonewall and Martin Duberman's um, biography where he talks about being this brilliant, handsome, blonde Jewish guy uh, who went to Yale and Princeton um, and was so self-loathing of himself because of his internalized homophobia. He really, really, better than anyone I've read, talks about that stage in his life. He would talk about the Stonewall, not in the romantic way he did post the Stonewall Rebellion, but as a place that he was desperate in. Um, and so the story came out from the very beginning that this was a riot. Well, as I said to you earlier, there's no police report except the seven arrested. There's no uh, fire department. There was, you know, one of the young people that actually was there kept talking, and this is what David Carter, the creation of Stonewall Riots, about uh, trying to burn the place down. Well, someone might have thrown a match or two at the door, but there was no fire. There was no fire department, which is on the next block coming to put it out. These kinds of things that became what I always called a trying to act like straight people in the 60s, radicals, and, the, and their very strong opposition to the Vietnam War and their increasingly angry, and I don't want to use the word violent, but dangerous protest. It wasn't like that. When, when I talked about that flashpoint of, when she burst out of the car and people started cheering. To me, it was like, and I said this about Larry Levant in the garage, it was like this high point in a disco where everyone is like dancing around and cheering. Uh, gay men at that particular time in history 
unless they were trying to hide their homosexuality and be straighter than straight, do not riot. Do not, by nature, I mean, I'm going a little broad here, but I believe that's not who we are. And uh, so there was a celebratory tone to what was going on in the street. And the celebratory tone came from people coming out, being visible, being public, coming out to their cell, regurgitating the homophobia inside all of us because of the culture that we were brought up in and we're living in. Uh, it was celebratory. And this continual, and, and many, I'm gonna use the word I don't particularly like, but many queer journalists continue to repeat the story of a riot. Um, Carter changed his title of his book later because of the criticism of people who were actually there. Um, but it's, so already this myth has been developed of a riot, a riot, a riot. I have been in two riots in my life. They're incredibly scary. I was at Newark when all hell broke out with the Yippies and I was in Watts in the cemetery. Um, my friend Gene Fredorko and I had picked up two, uh, he had a taste for people, men of color, two men at a gay bar in West Hollywood. And we drove out to the cemetery to uh, frolic, if you will. And, and in the middle of that, this explosion happened in Watts. We could see it. We could see the lights. We could see the fires. And we certainly could hear it. And it was totally scary. Um, and how we got out of there is another story and another thing. I was with someone who said he was Frankie Lyman. Um, and I want to believe he was Frankie Lyman because he looked like Frankie Lyman. He said he'd gotten out of jail. He, he was in recovery and he was still singing. Was he Frankie Lyman? You know, I can't tell you. I wasn't tattooed on his foreskin or anything like that. Um, but that's, you know, so I know what it's like to be where there's, where there's mass destruction and people out of control, window smashing, stealing, looting. That's a riot. We saw it on television in Seattle, and we've seen it in other places. People out of control, full of rage that has finally been released uh, because of their oppression. Um, it was not like that. But for some reason, that's not a sexy story. I think it's more important to talk about what happened to gay men. And it was gay men. You see very few women. The only woman that came out of the Stonewall was the one I described. And the other one, which was the crazy speed freak dyke, um, and I say that in, in the language of the day. Uh, and, and we've had, I, I've had to continually tell this story as I'm telling it to you and not be believed because it's what, not sexy? I think it's a very important story about how you deal with internalized rebellion. And when I talk about internal, internalized oppression called homophobia, um, and self-loathing, that when it, when it finally is released, that's what happened in that flashpoint moment. You can be out as hell, you can be all the politics in the world, and if you haven't dealt with the internalized homophobia that was deeply embedded both by family and society, you know, you're not authentic. And the moment that happened when she tried to tip over that car was when people let go and felt the freedom 
to actually, oh, uh, and, and look at each other, you know? Um, it's, it, it's an amazing event in my memory. And it deeply wounds me when people uh, dismiss it. The, in the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, which I, by the way, was not allowed to talk any place because I've been canceled because of so-called transphobia. And we can talk about that a little later. Um, I found that gay and lesbian people participated in the creation of this myth. And I have asked myself over the years, how important is the myth? You know, um, do, does something have to be true? Uh, I happen to be a reality-based, fact-based journalist with opinions. It's one of my careers was as a journalist. Uh, and it bothers me that people are willing to believe this false myth and artists and creative people also celebrate Stonewall for something it wasn't. The second night of Stonewall was much more organized. The, there was a left socialist group called Youth Against War and Fascism. And they showed up with all the banners that I'd seen a hundred times, orange with uh, political statements on it. And leading it was Leslie, oh, transgender person, uh, wrote the first transgender book. Trying to remember her last name, sorry, but it will come to me. And, and I knew Leslie, and I have to tell you, I never knew if Leslie was a boy or a girl. I mean, androgyny was, was a, a, a very esteemed practice in those days. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. She's that person's Leslie, and I would call Leslie she, and she never objected to that. But she was there that second night. They were the first group to come and support us. I'll never forget when they rounded the corner on Waverly Place and came into Christopher Street with all these women up front, most of them with short hair and sort of not twiggy bodies. Uh, and I thought, oh my God, all the mothers of all the kids I grew up in my working class Italian, Irish, Portuguese neighborhood, their mothers all look like that. They must have been lesbians. I mean, the simplicity of the imagination of a young person myself at that time. Um, of course they weren't, they were just working class looking women. Tell me, as you know, in recent years, you're talking about an original from back at the end of June, 1969, misinterpretations by the media of these events. Now, in recent years, there's been a new wave of misinterpretation of these events. And we are told that in fact, Stonewall, the Stonewall riots, as they are called, were instigated by quote unquote, transgender women, notably Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. Now, the first thing I think of and I thought of when I heard this years ago was, but wait a second, when I first moved to New York, I moved to New York much later in 1988, January, and one of the first times I went to the West Village, I saw Marsha P. Johnson walking around in the middle of the street, just sort of swaggering and, you know, having a good time, um, talking to people, well known to people, to shop owners. And this was not someone who, at least not in 1988, was calling himself a transgender woman. 
And so there seems to be this kind of Monday morning footballing of the Stonewall riot and of people's quote unquote identities. Also, Sylvia Rivera. And then you've got another actor in all of this, a lesbian called Stormy Delarvery, who many lesbians claim was there, was the person who quote unquote started it all. But it's very hard to make sense of all these contemporary rehashings of the history in the face of what you've just told me. Because when I looked up this information years ago, I found an article you had written. I found many other articles. The articles never seemed to match up. You know, so you had to really trust the people who were there. How do we know what the right history is, given that in the last 10 years, we've been told that this wasn't about gay men. This was about transgender women. I'm just breathing, okay? <laughs> because it, it's, it's, I mean, I met Stormy in 1965 in San Francisco when Stormy was a part of the Jewel Box Review, a mafia-owned troupe that performed in a mafia-owned space called Club 82 on East 4th Street and 2nd Avenue. Stormy was handsome, and Stormy never identified as a male, but, as, but as a butch lesbian, and was handsome and a gentleman, and always played the man in, in the company of these fabulous drag queens. So I knew Stormy. I want to talk about how the mob works. If the Stonewall police, to my understanding, the early incident of a payoff gone wrong was separate from when the second wave of police came. It was a planned raid on the Stonewall. And the club knew about it. I know that because I had to deal with that when I was a nightclub entrepreneur. You could not do nightlife business without some involvement of organized crime. My goals, and it was successful, was to keep them out of the club. You know, I didn't care, and I should have, but I didn't care about the money issue. Um, the old hippie was still in charge. And so these things are arranged in the earlier part of the evening. Dance Chariot was raided. My business partner knew that it was going to happen. He did not tell me. The night that the raid happened, I usually open the club and he came in and said, I have to talk to you. Let's go have dinner. And I said, well, why don't we do it after the club is open? He said, no, no, no. It's really important. I have to talk to you now. And for the first time and the last time, I went out with him and, and we had dinner and he talked about what I don't remember. We came back and the raid had already happened. And, and, the, and the employees, which is usually what happens, were taken downtown. The Dogos, by the way, were in the basement because they were going to perform that night. Um, and I did pay them, by the way. I've always paid artists. But going back to Stormy, um, if you worked in a, in a gay club in particular, and Stormy worked as a doorman, there was a different lesbian bar, so she would work as the security at the door. And she did that all of her life after the Jewel Box Review was no longer. You are told to run, get out of there. The, the, the mob was very insistent that you don't get arrested by the police because they were afraid you would talk about how the club was run. And Stormy 
I was there from 10.15 at night until 1.30 when everything was over. I did not see Stormy. And, uh, and, and the desire to have a black trans man, quote unquote, uh, as a figure in, in this historical moment by activists in the late 80s and 90s was so strong that they wrote their own history. They also talked about black trans women throwing the first brick. Well, I don't know where they, unless they were bringing the bricks in their handbags, and most of them didn't have large handbags, and their, and their dress did not have large pockets. I don't know where they got these bricks. Sylvia Rivera was not there. Marsha had called Sylvia. Now, I knew, I met Marsha in 1967. I knew Marsha from the neighborhood. We would go to Tiffany's Diner, and I never forget one night, she said, hey, baby, are you hungry? And I said, well, you know, it's okay. And she said, oh, give me 45 minutes and I'll come back and we'll have dinner. And she went up to 41st Street and blew a couple of truck drivers for whatever she could get out of them and came back downtown uh, as if, you know, this we didn't talk about that. And we had dinner at Tiffany's. Uh, that's the kind of person Marsha was. She was not the forceful activist that Sylvia became. And Marsha said, I'm, I wasn't there. And then Sylvia said to Martin Duberman in the Stonewall book, which has been overlooked in this new history, uh, said, I was there. And I said to Marty, I said, I don't think you understand street queens. You know, they treat you like a junk. They want you to pay for their dinner or pay, you know, the, 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 pick up the check. And so Sylvia, Sylvia was street smart. And Sylvia told Marty whatever she thought Marty wanted to hear. Sylvia was not there. Sylvia passed out in a taxi cab coming from Queens. And the cab driver took her back to where he picked her up. Marsha wasn't there. She said she wasn't there. She said she was there late at night. She might have come by at three o'clock. Um, but she never claimed uh, to be there. Syl and and. It was Marsha who told me about Sylvia wasn't being there. And then I spoke to Sylvia and she said, oh, don't pay it no mind. Uh, I know I wasn't there. And I, and I have to say this, from the second night on, Sylvia was very, very present in the Gay Liberation Front, um, in the in STAR, in the founding of STAR, uh, Street Transvestite Action Revolution, uh, Sylvia and Marsha. But the mythology, I mean, if I have to hear one more time about Black transgender women were at the forefront of this, you have to understand how racism worked in the organizing of gay bars by organized crime in New York City. Yes, there were gay bars for Black homosexual, mostly men, but some lesbians who would go to the, they were mixed between Black men and women, but they were dominantly gay Black men. There was one in Times Square, and there was one that I knew of, and there was one on the Upper West Side, and there was one in Harlem. So the Stonewall Inn, there were very few blacks. Now you have to understand one of the things that the Stonewall Inn represented. It was a place for closeted and sometimes married men to hook up with young men for well, let's just say it, with hustlers who they would pay. And if you were a very attractive black gay man hustler and you wanted to get into the 
Stonewall and you you would, but that they were the, truly a minority, as were drag queens. They were a very small force in the Stonewall Inn because most of the men that were there to buy boys or buy drugs, a lot of drug dealing was going on in that bar. It was a very seedy place. That's what the bar was like in form. And this romantic idea of dancing on the tables and dancing on the bar just did not happen pre-Stonewall, post-Stonewall, as Ed White, uh, Edmund White would say, it became a predominantly black gay male bar. And, and Marty, uh, I mean, not Marty, uh, Edwin has spoken about liking to go to the Stonewall Inn, but it was post-post. It became a black gay bar. And after Stonewall, many people of color of same-sex attraction came from everywhere to on a Saturday or Friday night because the subway system brought them from New Jersey. The PATH train had a stop on Christopher Street close to the river. And there was a much more visible presence of black and brown, gay men mostly, but also lesbians. The lesbian bars, there were, le there were two or three lesbian bars at the time. I'll tell you, you want to hear a funny story that will divert for a moment from Sylvia who I do want to talk about. There was a bar called the Sea Colony, and it was just below 14th Street on Hudson's, where Hudson began. And I've always gotten along with lesbians. And one night I was out with my lesbian friends, and they were going there. And I had, you know, like one of those fluffy gay sweaters on and a pair of gay pants on. And I had long hair. And I was, you know, in some people's mind, pretty rather than handsome. And so we all go to the Stonewall Inn. We're in there, and the and the, the music is playing. It's playing on the, I believe, on the jukebox. The jukebox was controlled by organized crime all over the city. So this romantic idea of the jukebox at the Stonewall Inn, for example, it had the same songs as all the other clubs around that neighborhood. They might have had one or two songs that were put on, um, as requested by the management. But this romantic notion of the Stonewall jukebox, it was a jukebox like any other liquor bar that had a jukebox. And so the, did the sea column. So we're, I'm leaning up against a bar talking with one of my lesbian friends. And this butch comes over and looks at me up and down and says, I want to dance with you, okay? And I looked at my lesbian friends and they said, go on, go on, go on. And so we're out there dancing and there's something called the fish. It was a lesbian dance, um, intertwining legs, et cetera. And she started dancing the fish with me and her hand was sort of moving up my leg. And I got totally freaked out because I thought, oh my God, she's gonna find out that I'm a guy. She got to my genitals and she got so pissed off, she started, I'm gonna fuck your face off, you know, you blah, blah, blah. And I was freaked out. And my friends, my lesbian friends sort of came and divided us up. And in retrospect, it was funny, but in the moment it was really scary because of the gender expression, both the femmes and the butch, which was really very predominant in the lesbian and, and to some degree, pre-Stonewall in the gay male community tops and bottoms and things like that. 
And we immediately left the Stonewall Inn. And I never forgot that encounter. It's in, you know, in the current time, I've thought of that, about masquerading as a gender or a, a birth sex that you are not, and leading on a guy who does not understand that the person that he's completely infatuated with uh, is in fact a birth sex boy. And I do believe a homosexual panic is real. I don't think it justifies killing. I don't think it justifies any kind of brutality. But the moment of discovery that the person you with is a man, and that means you're a homosexual, and particularly in working class and religious communities with the upbringing, that was the worst thing you could possibly be. And to, I wasn't trying to masquerade as a woman, but I presented myself as androgynous and the butch had gotten confused. And I think a lot of what we see today among trans women who quote unquote are professional sex workers is the gender illusion fools the man. And sometimes these men actually know what is going on and won't admit it. But there is, a, there is I believe, a moment of truth when the, when the male discovers that he is with another male and not with the, the sexy woman that has presented himself or her, herself or themselves, whatever. I don't, I don't want to sound uh, anti-trans, but I want to reality check how life is rather than how life is spun by the activist. Right. And you mentioned Marcia P. Johnson as a drag queen. And a lot of people who are Generation Z or thereafter have missed out that history, that people were not claiming to be really the opposite sex. Drag was a performative. It was a way of life for some. It was on stage for most uniquely and there seems to be a willful desire to misunderstand this history not only misrepresent it but you see on twitter and facebook people fighting over this and i'm like i, I met marcia p johnson he was a drag queen he was a gay man he was many things because he was also very well loved from what i could see in the few instances i came in contact with him on the street and once in a club but this was now recast as he led Stonewall, he was really a transgender woman, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How did this shark get jumped? Because at the beginning of the show, you mentioned how even academics aren't getting the history right. And I'm seeing a lot of academic books written over the past 15 years that try to cast Stonewall as a queer liberation movement, when queer back in 1969 didn't mean what it means today, first of all. It was one of those ways of saying gay without saying gay, first off. Yeah. You know, the, uh, I'm very glad you, 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 you brought the subject of language up. And I always try to speak of the language of the time and not layer the current language on a historical moment. And I also want to say, Marsha P. Johnson always identified as a gay man. And you will see a picture that I've posted of Marsha, Sylvia, me, and two other people in a, 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 a gay pride march in New York City in the late 90s. 
And Marsha is not dressed in drag. Now, understand that Marsha survived financially by turning tricks. And by turning tricks, it was the quick blowjob in the, in the car or the seat of a truck uh, in, in a particular area in New York in Hell's Kitchen behind the, the uh, transportation center on 8th Avenue. And, Mar and Marsha would dress appropriately. He had a very male body. And you see that in the pictures that I've, I've posted of Marsha and me to authenticate that I knew him and, and, and that we were friends. Um, and so, I mean, Marsha was also had mental health issues, uh, was an extrovert. And uh, I don't know if was gender dysphoric or not. That was not my experience of Marsha. I've met gender dysphoric people. Um, but was it was an exhibitionist. And the, the perfect painting of Marsha for me is the Andy Warhol painting. The huge smile, you know, the openness of being seen. Um, but Marsha was not like Sylvia Rivera. And Marsha was not at the Stonewall Inn in the time that the activities of the rebellion took place. As I said before, the tactical police cleared this narrow street because it was a main thoroughfare where the buses came through. They knew how to clear a street without beating up people. There's an angry picture of young gay men looking, you know, pissed off. Well, of course they were pissed off. I was pissed off, you know, at their ability to so methodically clear the street and open it up to traffic again. And by one o'clock, they were gone. Most of the, the people had marched off. Once the police were in charge, they, we marched, we gathered people, marched them off, went across Christmas Street to Waverly Place, went across Waverly Place, passed Julius's, one of the oldest gay bars in the village, and one where people passed to be straight until they had a couple of beers. And we were, and I don't know where, who said this, it wasn't me, but a cheer one, a chant, come out, come out, come out. And I can remember we were going by the Julius's and, and yelling, come out, come out. And we'd get a glass lifted to us or a beer bottle lifted to us through the window. And that was it. Nobody came out. And the, and the crowd moved off going up 7th Avenue. Um, as I said, the arrests were only the people that worked in the bar. And that wasn't all of them. Some of them got away. They did what the mob had told them to do. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the speed freak died. He tried to bite a police officer which was considered assault, but, and wrote up in the, in the Daily News as assault, an injure of a police officer who went to the hospital and was, and was discharged with, they hadn't even penetrated the uniform. Anyway, so we have Marsha P. Johnson, who was like the chief lieutenant to the unstoppable, unshutupable Sylvia Rivera. Uh, and, and both of them became active members in the Gay Liberation Front. And when we founded the first community center, 
in a loft space on 3rd Street and 6th Avenue, Sylvia and Marsha moved in and made it a place for a lot of the street queens to live in, much to the dismay of some of the people in the Gay Liberation Front. We also, I mean, one of the other things which is interesting, uh, we had a number of demonstrations, but the NYU tried to start a chapter of Gay Liberation Front for students at NYU. And they wanted to have a, 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 a gay dance. Um, the Gay Liberation Front women had been having dances for women because they wanted out of the bars. They'd been sponsoring dances for women. And, and they wanted the NYU students wanted to role model on the fact that there would be dances that were controlled by the gay and lesbian students at NYU. And the officials refused to give them permission. So there wasn't, they asked us to come and occupy the, the, the building in which we were going, they were going to have this dance. And we did, and there's pictures of that. But Marsha and Sylvia moved in there. <laughs> and, um, and you know, this is reality-based. These kids, these are gender non-conforming, if you will, are um, effeminate gay men whose gender expression was, was not the assimilated homosexual's desire. Well, most, many of them were homeless. They had been thrown out of their homes. They survived by doing sex work. Ah, I'm just thinking about those kids. Anyway, so but, but that's where Star was born. And Star moved into the, uh, the, the, the short-lived gay community center that we started. It was the first one. I later was one of the founders of the, the community center in the 80s in New York. Uh, and Marsha was always like standing next to Sylvia, being Sylvia's support. <coughs> it was only in the 80s when the emerging trans activists came about and adopted Marsha that you might see more dressing up. Never identified in my knowledge, and I was a good friend of Marsha's, and I was a very good friend of Sylvia's. There was a, a person called Bill Dobbs who had been in, uh, later in ACT UP, and he, I'm trying to parse my words here, he was a lawyer that never practiced. We don't know if he was admitted to the bar, and he always was the outsider in the room, observing and critiquing, but never participating, because he couldn't be a participant in any of the uh, ACT UP or the GAA demonstrations. And he targeted me. Uh, and continues to target me. And I don't know, he behaved like a, a police agent, but I don't know if he was a police agent or not. I know that he once sent me to the hospital when he attacked me from behind, which I didn't call the police on. The Stonewall Rebellion lasted how many days? Three nights. And then there was a fourth night, but it had really dissipated. On the third night, uh, we heard that Mattachine was going to be having a community meeting in a local church. The first night of Stonewall at 1.30, seven gay men, who most of whom I knew as activists in, in, in housing or the anti-war movement, uh, gathered at the corner of Waverly and Waverly, comes together, two different streets are called Waverly, and said, how do we keep this going? 
And I remember there was this really rat of a kid named Mark Siegel. And he came over and said that he goes to the Stonewall Inn. He was, I think, 19 or 18. I think the drinking age was 18 at that time in New York. But did not say that he was inside the bar until about two years ago. The confabulation by gays and lesbians about these events it really bothers me because I think you tell the truth. Anyway, we gathered together and said, how do we keep this going? And this was without cell phones, you know, without fax machines. Um, it was phone trees were the way we, the way people communicated. And I was um, assigned the task of calling 200 organizations and activists, but calling the gay and lesbian people that were in them, mostly closeted. Um, Betty Friedan had thrown out the so-called lavender men's, the lesbians from now, the women's movement. And she threw them out which for an understandable reason. I wanna just put that there. She was afraid that if straight men and husbands found out that there were lesbians in the women's movement, then they would just dismiss it as a bunch of man-hating people. The only man-hating women that I have known except for women that may have been lesbians who had been raped, were the women that were involved in relationships with misogynist men. I never, never heard the lesbians that I knew in the Gay Liberation Front who went after a year went and organized among women. I remember Michaela Grippo said to me, Jim, it's not that we hate you. We want to go where women are. We love women. We want to organize women. That's our job. Your job is to get rid of, educate these sexist, misogynist gay men in GLF and have consciousness raising group. And of course, I wanted to go with them, but I was told I was put in my place. And uh, that's that's just a, an interesting story. That happened at the Black Panthers People's Revolutionary Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia and later in the early 70s. Uh, see, that's a complicated history that never gets told. Well, that's it. I went to CUNY for my PhD. I knew Martin Duberman, and I really appreciate his work on historicizing the gay community in New York City, especially. And one of the questions that always came to mind in looking back at Stonewall was how it was chronicled, yeah. because we also got the version of the riot, right? The word you don't like, but it was represented as a riot that gay men were upset that Judy Garland had died. That's another narrative I'm sure you're familiar with. Of course. <laughs> Part of me wonders to what degree some of these representations of the Stonewall riots at the end of June 1969 were not some kind of rehashing of age-old homophobic myths about gay men being uppity, gay men being upset, gay men being upset that Judy Garland died. And then in recent years, we have been given the most surreal coverage of the Stonewall riots, which resembles nothing to what you're saying. We were told by this actor named Jeffrey Marsh, who lives on social media, that basically Marlena Dietrich, Greta Garbo, Stormy, and myriad other people, David Bowie, all these people were trans, right? Billy Tipton, remember Billy Tipton, the lesbian yes, jazz I, musician? I, yes, I know. And uh, Hatchaput, uh, Joan of Arc, Queen Christina, Oh, uh, Hannah Schnell, uh, Charlie Parkers, Nora Vincent, Carson McCullers, Redcliffe, everyone is trans. 
And of course, when you go through the list, we're left with no lesbians, right? Well, of course you're left with no lesbians because they've been erased in this new language and new history that's been created. And it really bothers me. And because I continue to speak up, you know, that's why I'm canceled at this point. A political correctness on the left is, uh, is like fascism on the right when it comes to these kinds of issues. People have to have fact-based information. Now let's talk about Judy Garland for a moment. You know, I was born in 1941. I grew up in a working class neighborhood in, in Rhode Island. I knew I was different from a very early age. I don't think that people know they're gay at three. I don't think they know they're gay at five. They know that they are different. They may, they may like to play with the girls rather than the boys, whatever. Sex is not even an issue at that point. Children are sexual, but it's not conscious of, in the way that we are self-knowledgeable as um, informed brains have. Uh, and, and the role that social media has played in this is just extraordinary in, in creating a conflict and confusion among people, pre-adolescent children who are you know, freaked out about their bodies and freaked out about the changes in them. Now they're given an answer that helps them avoid it. Um, but that's, I want to talk about Judy Garland. My mother loved Judy Garland. And I went to see Judy Garland with my mother at the Newport Jazz Festival when I was about nine or 10. And I'll never forget, we waited three hours for her to come on stage and it was raining and people were really fucking pissed off. And then Judy steps on the stage, runs to the, to the apron of the stage, throws her legs over it, sits down and says, I'm sorry I'm late. I love each and every one of you. And I'm going to sing every song I know. Completely wiped out any pissed off feelings that that crowd had. And she held them in her hand. And then she proceeded to do a set of incredibly emotional music, much of it about the feelings that many gay men have, you know, the, the unrequited love, you know, the man that got away, you know. Uh, so I knew very much about Judy Garland. And when I came to New York, I went to the famous Judy Garland concert at Carnegie Hall. I always used to say, you know, I sang with Judy Garland. Um, I don't do that anymore because it's sort of heightened description of what happened at Carnegie Hall. She had all the men singing and it was all men. I don't, there probably was some women there, but I remember them as old men. And I understood because I had become a, I was training with Lee Strasberg in his professional class and the emotional life was something that I was dealing with and understanding how that is a tool in acting. And I understood on an emotional level, consciously, for what Judy Garland meant to gay men. And her, you know, her messed up life, and she'll I'll go on singing. And and she, you know, like Courtney Love, loved her children. And she may have been a nightmare as a mother, but she loved her children. So I realized that that certain older generation who certainly were not at Stonewall that night, they were certainly were not out of their closets 
they were had created an underground community, but it was all underground. They lived straight lives if they could pass, or they were the fairy hairdresser. The stereotype roles that we were given, hairdressers, florists, clothing designers, chefs, etc., dog walkers. I mean, you can, the kinds of jobs that gay men's creative talent actually made them celebrity at what they did, not as gay men, but as hairdressers, florists, decorators, designers, etc. So I understood when Judy died, the emotional impact it had of generations that were my age or older. But the young kids that were in the street that night were either activists who were closeted gays in the anti-war movement or this movement, et cetera, or were people that passed as straight or tried to. And as I tell you, that flashpoint moment of dealing with internalized homophobia and letting go of the closet within me, as I saw with other people, and looking and being visible, being seeing each other in a non-sex-related encounter. So yes, Judy's death did affect emotionally, but those were not the people that were in the streets those nights of Stonewall. It was not the people that came together on the third night when, GL, when, when GLF was formed and the Gay Liberation was formed. When we, <coughs> those of us who had started talking to each other about continuing this movement because we realized that our time had finally come at the end of this century, this decade of activism on all levels of civil rights, racism, sexism, all came before us. I don't believe there would have been a homosexual rebellion, a Stonewall rebellion, if the women's movement hadn't come before us. And we were not in the streets because of Judy. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. This is what is bothering me about the recent... It's now going almost on two decades. It started even before I started to get involved in covering the transgender lobby the last decade, but it's really been since around the late 90s. I'll tell you what happened to me. I lived in New York since 1988, but I had a lot of research to do elsewhere. I was an anthropologist. I've taught all over Latin America, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, I've done research. And I was in and out of New York many years as well. So I came back to New York. I had just been in Italy and I was pretty shocked when I was in the cubby hole, yeah. And there was some kind of gay rag, but it was all about transgender. And I said, what does that have to do with us? The other lesbians just shrugged their shoulders. And in talking with other gay men and women over the next months, and it was pretty much the next months that I began to find out very quickly that after Crixivan came on the market, after one could live with AIDS, taking Crixivan or any of its off-brand names, that these gay institutions that had been formed in the U.S., in cities, or in the U.K., you have a national one like Stonewall, these NGOs lost their mandates because they no longer had to struggle to find 
money for housing and life support and helping the partner of this man who died of AIDS find a new home. That was no longer going to happen because of medical advances. And my whole theory about this, because it made no sense then, makes no sense now, why cluster us under an alphabet suit acronym that has nothing to do with us. I mean, if you're going to have an acronym, then include golfers and plumbers. It makes no sense to have people with either a gender identity that has been psychologically evaluated, and we aren't going to go there, but there's a whole body of discourse around how this was developed in the 1950s at the height of sexism in our country. The notion that one could be in the wrong gender, whatever that means, because I don't know about you, Jim, but I don't have a gender. I am female, <laughs> I'm a woman, and my whole life, since I can remember walking and speaking, I had to fight gender stereotypes, both as a woman and as a, a lesbian. And I'm sure as a gay man, you had to fight stereotypes as well. I don't know any gay man who didn't. But the reality is that we didn't fight the stereotype by saying, well, I'm actually a, a straight person born in the wrong body or some nonsense like that. And I have serious issues with the way that gender identity has come to take over, and I would even argue cannibalize our movement by stealth, by faking in a sense. And when I say that, I, I even mean unconsciously, but also consciously by some of the organizers to sort of hitch their caboose on our train. And I didn't fight for gay rights for years later, decades later, to be told that now there's a whole generation of young gay women, including teenagers, and they are the predominant subjects in these transgender clinics who are now going on testosterone at the age of 13, 14, 15, 16, depending on the state. I push back against this intellectually, but emotionally it frightens me because it's it's a new round of homophobia. I could not agree more with you. And I'm so, I'm sitting here having an emotional moment because this is how I feel. When I read Abigail's book about the, about the preteening and, and, and entering adolescent girls who suddenly blossomed into this transgender movement, um, I, I thought the role of social media and uh, what, I don't know what they're called anymore, but those, those people on YouTube who talked to, to these young people, female, and built revenue streaming because of the audience that they built to finance whatever they were doing to their body. Uh, and I thought her book was um, an eye opener. And I thought she went overboard in trying to accommodate the language, the new language that was going on. And I wrote to her and asked her why she did that. Uh, and she said, because she didn't want to be completely silenced, which eventually it happened. So I'm, I'm just taking a, a, a moment and a breath to say, it is, it is a very complicated and nuanced discussion we're about to, to enter. I will tell you for me, it began in the early 90s, uh, at the middle of the dark, the dark days of AIDS, when I was on the group that founded the LGBT, Lesbian and Gay Community Center in New York City in 1986. The one on West 13th Street? Yes. The way it started, there was a, 
I'm a um, not a believer. I'm, I mean, I, I studied to be a priest, and I no longer believe in the the institutions of religion. I think spirituality is a very important element in all of our lives, and it and it can take many ways of being spiritual, including activism. And there was a small. The way we got the building is we started to occupy it. It was a decision was made we would never ever not have people in the building when we were demanding it from the city. The city was giving away to minority groups, city-owned buildings for a dollar. And I remember going going to Koch with a group of other gay men that had excluded Larry Kramer because he called Koch a murderer, et cetera. And Larry Kramer tried to get us all not to go to this meeting, but we finally got this meeting with the mayor. And I asked him for the building, and he said no. Now, did he say no because he was a closeted gay man, which I knew because I knew the gay man that delivered seltzer to his apartment, and I knew about the Monday night poker strip parties that the mayor had. Uh, by the way, I'm not an outer unless you're dead or if you're doing something incredibly as a closeted homosexual to hurt gay and lesbian people. And, and I said to him, and I was quite amazed because I had never been in the presence of the mayor before. He was very tall and very large, you know, almost overwhelmingly so. And he stood up when he said no to me. Did he say that because of his closet? Did he say that because he didn't want to be thought of as a homosexual sympathizer? And this was a liberal. His history was as a liberal. Um, I didn't know. But we organized, and it was the evangelical gay church that had been founded before Stonewall um, in California, and who I remember going to their service in Oakland when I was in San Francisco before Stonewall. And I realized that the people that were there were the people you never saw in the media. Overweight, children, um, not you know your Marlboro man or your, your 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 bodybuilder or your handsome movie star looking gay man, which is usually what was featured uh, as who we were, or the drag queen, or the leather guy. You know that's how the media presented the homosexual community, and all those types existed in the community, but you never saw the ordinary lesbian or the ordinary gay man. Gay man trying to survive with some kind of quality and dignity of life, um, which is what the original organizations, the National, gay and Les the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force was formed and GLAD was formed to, um, to make it the universality and the diversity of the gay community of who we are in reality, as opposed to who we were being projected as market. So there was a hiring of a social worker to deal with gender issues at the community center. And they hired a straight woman. And I remember joining forces with lesbian and gay professionals, psychotherapists and social workers and saying, you mean you cannot find one of us that is qualified to work with gay and lesbian people? And that woman was hellbent on the gender identity role. And I can remember bringing 
calling them up, they hated me because I was very outspoken about why couldn't you hire one of our own? And I was told, well, we wanted to show that we didn't discriminate. That was the answer given to me. And, uh, and at one, and she set up this cl clinic that started dealing with subjectivity. Gender identity is a subjective identity. It is not based in biology. It is not based in science. There is no scientific explanation for transgender. There is no biological explanation for transgender. We are all born with a birth skeleton, and it is the skeleton that we die with. And whatever topography changes that are made to accommodate one's sense of self um, does not change the birth skeleton. You are not assigned uh, a gender at birth. You are not even assigned your birth sex. There is a criteria and it has evolved over the last 30 years, which is very specific about what are the characteristics of male and what is the characteristics, defining characteristics of female. Yes, there are exceptions. There have always been historically uh, exceptions, historically called hermaphrodites and now called intersex and in our community. And this woman's work, and now it's been, it has been adopted by most of the professional therapeutic communities is to endorse the subjective feelings of someone who feels different and out of place and not the role that has been construction of what is proper behavior for a male and what is proper behavior for a female. And it is so sad to me that where are the sissy boys and where are the butch girls? The children are now identified as trans kids. And the left, and I'm going to talk about the left because I am a leftist and have been all my life, embracing, embracing of these new definitions called trans kids. And in my personal life, I had this experience. I've never monetized being a gay man. I worked in other industries and I usually have not had a lot of money. And I was writing about film and I was a critic of some respect. Uh, and I would go to Sundance. I went to Sundance over a year from almost the beginning. It was a wonderful vacation for me. I just went to movies. I didn't do the social scene. I wasn't selling anything. I wasn't buying anything. And I no longer was identifying as an actor because most of the casting directors in the 60s and 70s were gay men and they were closeted. And when I came out, and when I came out, there was no national theater that, that protected Sir, what is his name? The famous actor, British actor, um, nice man. And there was no Stonewall uh, in England. Ian McClellan. Ian McClellan, who I actually had met and we had talked. And so I, you know, I'm also HDAD, you know, I, I have my brain is wired in a certain way. And when I meet opposition, I walk away from it and reinvent myself. Um, and I've done that all my life. Never the core of myself. I was out. I had never felt that gay being gay was wrong. I don't know how this working class Catholic um, who grew up in this, the, the sort of um, Thomas Merton, Thomas Aquinas school of religious uh, theory uh, wasn't oppressed in the way that almost all my friends who were Catholic and were gay had been damaged. I don't know why or how that happened. 
but I always felt that it was okay. And I never saw myself as the typical gay man. I didn't fit many of the stereotypes. And I was trying to, to construct a role that would help other gay men to come out of the oppression of the stereotypes, which were imposed by binary gender rules. I think a lot of trans, uh, the binary has won, as far as I'm concerned, uh, essentially won. And the, and, the, and the language invented by trans people is like Scientology. It is a loop language that is very hard to penetrate and very hard to, to, to criticize. If you take a word like cis, I think cis is a negative word and it's like all the other racial bias-based words, nigger, kike, etc. It has always in my experience been used to, to elevate one group of people over another group of people. And I really tell my friend, and so many white good people have adopted out of guilt the language of the trans activists without thinking it through and without challenging it. The difference between the rights of trans people, wherever they are on the spectrum, if they put on a dress and call, a male puts on a dress and calls himself trans, or they have quote unquote gender conforming surgery, the acceptance on the left of uncritical questioning of the emergence of the gender identity, which to me is fixed. And when I'm asked, and I'm asked a lot with people who don't really know me, what's my gender identity? And I say, well, what time of day is it? Where am I? And what am I doing? Because I can be many gender expressions. Let me go back to how I learned about gender. I learned it from the women's movement. I learned it from the radical lesbians that came into GLF at the very beginning and had been active in the women's movement. But they've always been critical of gender. What I learned was that gender was a whole arc of expression from extreme feminine to extreme masculine. And it wasn't based on, on birth sex. It was based on the expression of the gender. And gender itself what could never have been assigned at birth because it is socially constructed. It is how you grow up and how you learn about what is a boy, what is a girl. And for gay and lesbian children, it's the beginning of feeling different, not knowing, not having a name to put to it until recently when the name is, is, is forced by the parent or the, or the activist movement to call you trans. There's no historical referencing. I mean, you look at an Orthodox Jewish community. The men don't do anything but study. And they're all, they seem effeminate to me and others. And the women are the workhorses. They bear the children. They do, you know, they do all the things. They're strong. That's, that's gender expression that has been reinforced historically. We don't talk about the fox historically that were ragingly heterosexual and you know, completely feminized in, in, the, in the gender expression and dress. It's like no one's read Freud and no one's read Reich. And I'm very much influenced by the thoughts of Reich that we have feminine and masculine inside of each of us. And, and to acknowledge that first of all, and not be afraid of the expression of either side, um, 
None of that is in the rhetoric or the politics or the policy of the trans activist movement. And it's, and it's baffling to me and maddening because you can't even have a conversation where I, I've, any of the things I've just said to you, I will immediately uh, be shut up uh, saying that I've, you know, I've made a personal attack on the person and their identity. I remember asking very prominent trans activists, where were your genitals? They're, they're in the center of the room. They're pontificating. And then when I asked them about not their gender, but their sex organ, how dare you? That's private. Well, it's not private if you're going to put yourself in the middle of this discussion. And there should be no shame on either side of your answer. Uh, but it does matter. Well, there is a paradox here, though, Jim, because a lot of time trans activists over the years of debating online, they say to me, well, we're just like you. You were once medicalized as homosexuals and recommended to have various types of therapies, including shock. That was true. But homosexuals historically never, ever, ever ran around telling the public to see me and my boyfriend as me and my girlfriend. They did not make demands upon the social sphere that you see us and speak of us and to us as we prescribe to you. And they never undid what we know to be material reality, which is why earlier when you said you're a leftist, so am I. But where the hell is the left? Even Jacobin writes all kinds of nonsense on this subject, including an article about me. They wrote oh. an article about me 10 years ago when I wrote my first piece about what was going on in the UK between feminists and trans activists. It was a very fair piece. Of course, the trans activists didn't look that great. I called up Mermaids, uh, an NGO in London, which based in Leeds, which trans as children. That's never a good look because you know, even when I was one voice out of very few speaking out 10 years ago, you know that this is going to look very, very creepy in 20 years. And it already is. We're not even 20 years in from when I saw it. And these NGOs are looking like child predatory agencies making money off of lies, off of a fake diagnosis, because a lot of what's happening today, Jim, it's not like back in the day when I was a kid, I saw a person who would today be considered transgender, that person may or may not have been or have could have been a drag queen. I don't know. I was eight years old. I was in Canada walking down the street with my mother. But the reality is that that was a once in a blue moon, as they say, event. Today, it's quite common. In fact, it's alarming how focused these kinds of identities are amongst a certain social elite. It's You're not going to find it as common amongst the working class in the poor sections of town, but these are the things that happen, hence Warren Beatty's daughter. These are the things that happen in Northeastern private schools, boarding schools, because I believe that we have a real problem with historical materialism and class in the US, as in many other countries. We don't address class, we don't address workers inequality, we don't address poverty. And as a result, this combined with other theoretical problems, many people blame postmodernism. I think that's a bit simplified. But I think what has happened is that post-1997, you have the crash, you have the, the crash of the dot-coms later, you've got the global war on terror, you have the, all these insidious invasions that the U.S. commits. Jobs are going away. The professional class is quickly becoming a managerial class, right? So we've become the culture of, instead of those who can't teach, teach gym, 
we're becoming the culture of those who can't get a job manage. And now managerialism has snuck in. And in order to get kudos in those positions, which involve you having to purity posture, yes, pronouns came into play. All the private funding. I remember even in academia, you had to be responsible for getting a certain amount of funding in the Canadian institutions. And a lot of that had to do with dropping certain key words. And one of those key words in the 90s was queer, queer theory, homosexual desire, deconstruction, and a lot of four syllable and five syllable words that you see repeated on master's and doctoral theses. What I'm saying basically, Jim, is that we've entered an economy where no longer do you have that old Marxian relationship between commodification, the product, and reification. It's far worse than what Marx describes, and that was bad enough in the Industrial Revolution. We're at a stage far beyond that where people are no longer producing anything, and their job consists of managing a lot of identities. So you apply for a job in the UK, Every time I apply for a job in the UK, they've got questionnaires up the wazoo from your identity, if you come from what part of the world, what kind of religion, including pronouns, including gender identity. And this is all streamed into a computer that spits out information for HR every so often so that they can also qualify themselves for certain grants, government funding or co-sponsorship grants. And this is very troubling to me, Jim, because we're entering and we have now fully stepped into this age of identity as capital. At the same time, since 9-11, we've been living in a series of disaster capital moments. And disaster capitalism is here firmly cemented since the crash of the dot-com, 9-11, the invasions, Libya, Honduras, I mean, all the atrocities of the Obama administration that a lot of people who've been hating on Trump the last four years forget. Obama was horrible. Clinton, horrible, horrible. Yes. And, you know, I'm getting into trouble in feminist groups for pointing out the atrocities, the rapes that Hillary Clinton brought on because of the coup that she helped to, to bring on and sponsor. So, no one is addressing actual material reality down to media representation of facts. We're not getting that. Instead, we're getting the New York Times running pieces by, I'm a trans woman, they're trying to kill me. And Salon, same story. Everywhere, even far left publications like Counterpunch, I wrote a lot of pieces on gender for them until they said, we can't anymore, we're getting too much harassment. But then they went the other way and started running all these trans pieces. Now, obviously it has a lot to do with their funding. All these organizations need to make money to survive, but media outlets should still have an ethos, a central logic of we're going to cover facts. We're not going to, we're not going to spew ideology, but media, as you well know, especially since 9-11 has been ideology central. We have gotten one lie after the next about the war on terror. Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, the powder. There was no weapons of mass destruction, full outright lie aided and abetted by Judith Miller of the New York Times and many others. But she was the, she was the principal criminal in that one. So we have now the State Department taking its cues from a mythoman who worked for the New York Times, who was allowed to resign. Is it any wonder that today, when you've got a bunch of woke neoliberal, not even leftists, because I think a lot of these people wouldn't know left from the hole in the ground, 
They are neoliberals out for number one, because what else could be more narcissistic than running around harassing women on Twitter saying, you bigot, you turf, T-W-A-W. No, men are not women. And we need to stop saying the pronouns. We need to stop LOLing about misogynist representations of women on stage. I'll tell you something. You and I have another friend in common, and I really like his work, Joey Arias. I remember in the day when Joey and Raveno had their show at Bardot, remember that? And I would take my students from NYU at the end of the session, at the end of the semester, after all the work was done, no conflicts of interest. It was like, let's have a night out and say goodbye. It was, you know, either before Christmas or before the summer. We did it. And I really love Joey's work. Brilliant artist. Now, the thing is, is he put a spin on Billie Holiday never before imagined or seen. The first time I saw it, I was you know quite young and I thought, oh, because I'm a big Billie Holiday fan, mind you. So I was not prepared for Joey giving a blowjob to the mic, but it was all quite brilliant. Raven, oh, oh my God, can they? And, and there was more, there was Shirley Vine one year right before Christmas. Shirley Vine sang this great Hanukkah song to the tune of Deborah Harry's Rapture. It was so funny. I was on the ground laughing, crying, laughing. Now, that I really loved. But then, you know, since the trans ideology has really hit full throttle the last decade, I've had so many discussions with feminists in London that they made me rethink a lot about what I found funny. Now, to be fair, I found funny the Hanukkah song. There was no misogyny to it. It was, you have to hear it, it's great. Um, but I found funny and I found interesting even the artistry with which Joey Arias could channel Billie Holiday because really there are times you think you're listening to Billie Holiday, but with a contemporary twist, it even didn't matter that Joey was in drag. It did not matter what these men were wearing. But at the same time, I understand the feminist arguments critiquing this kind of, not them, but this other tranche of of onstage misogyny parodying women that also takes place. It, it, it doesn't even have to be gay men on stage. Flip, Flip Wilson did it, remember? A lot of what was drag was based on stereotypes of women, but then isn't all comedy based on stereotypes of women? That's an interesting question. I want to jump in because you've just brought so many things that are so uh, important to me and put them on the tape. Um, I want to tell you, uh, the I've known Joey Arias since he was in his first band, uh, and I booked them at, I had the hot clubs, you know, for numbers of years, and Joey has remained a friend, and he's always appreciated me, you know, for who I am, without getting caught up in the, in the, the debate of politeness. I have asked Joey, why do you stoop to low humor in your act? Because I've seen you with the jazz trio and you don't do it. And I wondered, is it just because of breath? You don't have the energy or the breath to do another song, so you do that. It's half the act. And he said, well, I do it because that's the history I come out of. And also, yes, uh, the instrument <laughs> needs a rest. I take it very seriously. And I said to him, you don't have to do that. There's other ways to handle that. I mean, I come out of a theatrical background, well-trained. And he just performed and invited me, and I forgot that he was 
playing at Joe's Pub for two nights. Uh, so I don't, and he's put on wave, and I don't know how he presents it himself. But he's a master, and he uses the pronoun he. You know, it gets in trouble because I come from the old gay culture when the gay guys would talk to each other like, girl, hey, girl, you know, or, and the, and the docs, docs would say, the dykes would say, what do you guys want to do? And I always thought that we were on the front lines of confronting the binary rules until the trans movement took over and wanted to masquerade, not tell the truth, deny their body, and say that they were women. And I don't think any man is ever going to know what the experience of what being a biological woman is. Yes, they can know femininity. Yes, they can know sensitivity, but they cannot experience what the body and the brain of a biological woman is. And no one wants to answer that question. Thank you.